Well, uh, you know, normally I introduce the podcast now, um, but today I think is a, a special occasion because Ian, you've brought with you somebody who I think you are more uh, the appropriate person to introduce, and that's your father. That's uh, that's that's exactly right, Evan. Yes, uh, we're welcoming my uh, my father Dan to uh, to the Jokerman podcast as an honorary Jokerman uh, here with us today to talk about um, uh, you know a, a an interesting album uh, in uh, in in the in the Bob Dylan discography, um, Empire Burlesque of nineteen eighty five. Definitely more interesting than the last one that we discussed the live record real live definitely a little more interesting than real live uh and i suppose it's it's also worth noting uh the the reason my father is is with us here is because he's not like any dad uh he is he's what's known as a cool dad uh, <laughs> right. and uh has <laughs> has has quite a bit of uh, experience in the cool uh you know listening listening to cool music i, I actually credit him with uh with much of my appreciation for uh rock and roll uh, as, uh, as, as, uh, as a young man myself. But when you, you um, described, I've just heard things, pieces of information here and there over, over the years, really, um, about, yes. about Mr. Grant, your father, oh, Mr. Grant. Who, who's here. Um, <laughs> and, um, yeah, I just like, couldn't believe, uh, I, I, it was hard for me to wrap my head around the idea of having a, a parent who is a, a fan of the fall. Yeah, Evan is a big Marky Smith, oh, is that right? big dad, a big and, fall fan. Well, can um, I? Yeah. Can I just drop a quick fall story on you? Oh, please. That's why you know. That's why you're back, here. I'd love nothing more. Back in about, I want to say it was probably '79. Is is I'm pretty sure. I could probably look it up on my on my phone here in the background. But I went to you know. Uh, Ian may or may not have mentioned that. My favorite band growing up in Southern California was X, the sort of, mm-hmm. um, you know, ultimate L.A. punk band. And yeah. uh, there was a show downtown, which is very close, coincidentally, to where I live now. And um, it, at a place called Hope Street Hall, which is, was one of these just, you know, hire, hire it out to have any event you want. Um, and downtown was not like it is today back in those days. And, uh, the bill was X, the germs, uh, I think maybe the alley cats, several other bands. There's about four or five bands and Mm. the fall happened to be in town. Yeah. I know that they were there in 79 to have conversations Uh, about getting a record contract and, and, um, they just did an unannounced like opening set. And, uh, you know, in 1979 in Los Angeles, even amongst people who were into like X and the germs, the fall was not a well-known band. Well, not at that. Yeah. They'd only been around a couple years. Yeah. I mean, you know, like I, I I got re like, I, I bought another time or whatever. I I have all the early fall (laughs) seven, you know, import singles Mm -hmm. and uh, the witch trials was like so big for me. And, um, same, I think maybe dragnet might've just have come out at the time that, you know, that this show took place. And so I, Again, right. this is wow. like just just this hole in the wall dump, um, you know, probably two hours before like the germs or X would come on. And here's the fall playing to like 50 scruffy teenage punk rockers in downtown L.A. It was just fucking unbelievable. 
That's so cool. Wow. Are you like into their later material? Uh, Do you like the later fall too? Because I know some people are more purists about. Yeah, you know, I really just dig Marky Smith's shtick. And, uh, you know, obviously almost every record sounded different. Um, But they all kind of had a similar sensibility. So even the stuff that was more pop oriented, like Mr. Pharmacist and uh, Victoria and stuff, I still like that stuff too. Um, they're, They're really, you know, it's one of those things where even a bad fall album, it's it just sort of has a rhythm to it that yeah. if you're into it, you like it, you know, even if it's not his you, best work. You know, I, I really think that that's a perfect segue to talk about Dylan, actually. It's it's sort of the mindset that I think I sort of helped me to even come up with the idea to do this podcast was like loving all the falls records sort of loving all of them even if there's some that i kind of like more it's about like absorbing it as a big holistic body of work and liking marky smith liking the guy yeah and you know bringing that same attitude to like loving all of lou reed's records to some degree uh and bob dylan is of course the subject of our our podcast here but um i think it's a similar feeling where there's it's, something if it's right in. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It, you know, and it's um, you know, what makes it very similar to Dylan is that you know, Dylan was more more musical, I think, than Marky Smith. Um I'm not even sure that Marky Smith could play an instrument. I don't believe so. You know, ever, you know. <laughs> and um so it's very like verbal, lyric intensive, idea intensive kind of music. Mm-hmm. And the music, while it's not secondary, it certainly plays a different role than it does with a different artist, you know? And I think a lot of right. Lou Reed stuff is like that. Like the mid period, you know, Lou Reed stuff where he kind of just was vamping with like blues riffs. It wasn't the most creative songwriting, but what he had to say, like New York, I I don't think that's the most creative music he ever wrote, but the lyrics carry carry that record. Yeah, definitely. And Dylan is sort of a weird case because he falls somewhere in between where he doesn't have this, uh, he doesn't have a sophisticated uh, way of approaching recording. It's still very... um, Luddite-ish, in, in, for most of his career anyway. But this particular record today that we're talking about, um, which is Empire Burlesque, sort of marks a point where he is trying to do something different in, in that respect. He He's not going into the studio and doing uh, track after track after track in like a few hours and knocking the record out. This is actually a more like prolonged process where there's a lot of overdubs and... Um, Different, very so, different versions of the songs with right. different backing yeah. musicians. It, you know, it, it. You know, we, we'll get into it, but it's what you're saying is right on target. It's. Um, it was coming at a period for him, I think, where he was trying to figure out the way forward. You know, coming mm-hmm. out of the Christian thing. I still think Infidels was kind of Christian adjacent even though I like yeah, it and there's yeah. good songs on it. Um, and, um, you know, and so this record came out in the middle of the Reagan era 
where, you know, where even kind of rich, you know, Malibu's rock stars were trying to get political and, um, you know, the new wave sounds had kind of taken over the mainstream. And so everybody was kind of trying to experiment with those kinds of musical ideas. And, um, you know, this is kind of a mixed bag of all that stuff. Yeah, very much definitely. so. Yeah. Can you, would you, uh, since you are uh, a little more wizened than the two of us and, and happen to be living through this period when the record came out, would you be able to just sort of contextualize what the, uh, what the general rock scene looked like in 85 and where Bob was, uh, was, was strolling into yeah, with sure. this record? I, I mean, and you know, Ian and I, I've talked about this a little bit leading up to it or really texted about it. You know, my, my concept of this album is that, you know, if you think about, 1985 um there were there was kind of a trend you know born in the usa and purple rain were still on you know all over the charts um i i happened to go to it just worked out that the first shows on the born in the usa tour were in los angeles and the last shows at the end of the tour, we're in Los Angeles. Uh, forgive me. And there's some kind of protest or something on going on, going on outside. Wow. You may be hearing that. <laughs> That's a, and yeah. so, um, yeah, I'm like two blocks from city hall. And so, wow. um, and, and so I saw Springsteen at the LA sports arena on, you know, he, I think he played three or two, either two or three nights at the sports arena to kick off the born in the USA tour. By the time the tour ended, he played seven nights at the Coliseum. And so um, he sort of heavily influenced the, you know, the white guitar based, you know, rock musician kind of um, music scene for that, like, let's say 18 to 24 month period, 84, 85. Mm -hmm. And uh, you also had records like, um, building the perfect beast by Tom, uh, Don Henley that had boys of summer Southern accent oh, yes. by Tom Petty that was produced by Dave Stewart from the Eurythmics. The, so you were, you were seeing these sort of legacy, you know, seventies era rock stars adopting some sort of new wave elements, very electronic process, drum sounds, taking the new wave, uh, out of the, um, out of the, the underground realm and and sort of gussing it up to a point where it stops being really new wave even it becomes just the new pop sound yeah the that's new exactly sound of the yeah, that's exactly it and and, and everybody right. wants a taste of this including <laughs> Dylan I, I guess yeah and if you you know like for example here's a good example if you look at the credits for um, building the perfect beast by um, Don Henley, you'll find Belinda Carlisle singing background vocals. So by by the mid '80s, the you know upstart punk rockers from LA that were threatening the status quo when they came out had the ones that were more commercial and acceptable had sort of just been co-opted and absorbed into the mainstream. And um, Dylan was kind of part of that because, you know, he was living there in Malibu and, um, you know, Tom Petty, um, 
you know, these ex-Eagle characters, the Fleetwood Mac people, um, George Harrison lived in Malibu. And um, it, it was all part of that kind of scene. And, um, you know, Dylan, and, you know, and others, you know, Linda Ronstadt put a new wave album out, quote unquote, new wave album. And, um, you know, I think that was what was behind you know, whosever decision it was, I, I've always assumed it was the record company's decision to bring in Arthur Baker to, you know, put a kind of new wave-ish veneer on top of the, you know, the production for this record. But the difference to me between what Dylan produced with Empire Burlesque and let's say Born in the USA was that those songs on Born in the USA were sort of all written as a piece and the instrumentation, the production, the songwriting, all of that was part of the same project. Whereas these Dylan songs were from a variety of different periods and had been previously recorded and not put on records. And it, it just sort of came across as a slapdash kind of, you know, after the fact attempt to kind of turn this into a more commercial enterprise than it might've been otherwise. Right. Right. I mean, there's a no producer really on this record uh, or Bob Dylan produced it himself ostensibly, but that's really not true. It seems, it seems like a lot of people had their hand in it. Um, well, I don't know what the what does it yeah, say on the record. Arthur Baker's credit credits. is mixed by Arthur Baker. Mixed by, so he's that's carrying yeah. a lot of weight. That mixed by credit. But, but remember, Arthur da Arthur Baker was a, was a, a DJ and a producer. He was coming off of the song "Confusion" by New Order, um, which is what had introduced me to him. That was their their next single after "Blue Monday," and. Um, oh. And mm. and Arthur Baker produced that, and it's a fantastic track. But it sounds nothing like Bob Dylan, you know. Yeah, the New Order Bob Dylan connection, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, the, the very yeah, very clear uh, uh, influence Bob uh, Bob Dylan on the music of Joy Division. Yeah. New Order. Um, yeah, I mean the record is is uh, is very much like a, a hodgepodge. I, I was doing a bit of reading myself, uh, you know, in, in advance of this, and it, and it seemed like one of the notable. Uh, traits of this album is the fact that it was recorded over uh, over an extremely long period of time, uh, almost a year, really. When in most cases Bob has been in the habit of just, or you know, up until this point, Bob had been in the habit of just you know booking a couple days in the studio, going in with a set of songs, banging them out as quickly as possible. Sometimes to their detriment. Obviously, we know he's not uh, a studio uh, perfectionist the way that Springsteen is or something. Um, but these songs, I think I th he, he recorded them between like summer 84 into like spring 85 or something. And, and, uh, and yeah, there, there were a couple, uh, a couple of these tracks, tight connection, for instance, and, uh, when the night comes falling from the sky that were, uh, had, had been kicking around and existing in some form for several years. And they just happened to be sort of agglomerated into this, this album, along with a series of other tracks, some of which, uh, you know, makes sense and kind of fit together cohesively from a sound perspective. But uh, it, it almost seems like there are like two or three different sonic directions that he's going on this three album. Three or at, four at or five. <laughs> or yeah, three. Yeah, yeah exactly. there's a, the it, song Someone's sort of Got a Hold of My Heart. Uh, that was one cut from Infidels that ended up actually right. becoming 
the opener. Yeah. Um, tight, tight connection, connection yeah. to my. Heart. I like that. I like that original version better, and I like the original version of when the uh, night comes falling from the sky, which the original oh, yes. was yes. recorded with like half the East Street band and produced by Steve Van Zandt. So that was the most conscious sort of Springsteen esque you know, kind of uh, attempt that was made. And then they ended up scrapping that and going with the version that's on the album. Yeah. We, we discussed yeah. last time a little bit about um, Dylan's pre- this pressure that seems to be on, on Bob Dylan's mind um, from all angles, from, from outside forces. And I think he's sort of uh, from, from within to an extent to keep up with the times and um, not be left behind. Um, like this sort of uh, desperation at, at its worst and sort of reckless a- ambition uh, at its best to maintain his relevance. And um, in in many cases, it does not work out to in his favor, but um, that's sort of the thrill of where we find uh, Mr. Dylan uh, at this point. And, um, in 1985. In, yeah, in it's, it's worth noting that this... Yeah, this is this is really the start of the descent into the deepest, darkest days of well, Bob's career. If I could uh, uh, just quote uh, briefly from the uh, the book here, uh, the recording sessions by Clinton Halen, the chapter on uh, Empire Burlesque and also Knocked Out Loaded, they were all record. They were both recorded around the same time. Um, it, it begins with very bluntly. The years from 1984 to 1987 represent the nadir of Dylan's studio career. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I think with that, shall we begin discussing the first track of the record? Yeah, we can hop, uh, hop, right, hop right along to, uh, to the very first song. Tight connection to my heart, parentheses, has anyone seen my love? Yeah. It really does have like two chorus uh, decisions that uh, he just, he just does both. Yep. There's a lot, uh, there's a lot going on in the song. I got to say um, it's uh, objectively it's one of the longer songs. There's a lot going on, like so many <laughs> instruments. <laughs> yeah. It, it, however you look at it, there's a lot going on. Um, I think it's one of the longer songs on the record. Uh, a lot of this album is made up of like, like three and a half minute songs. Um, and this is one of the few that extends, you know, you know, some, some distance, I think it's five, five and a half minutes, something like that. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, musically there's just, there's, there's a whole lot, certainly much more than the original cut. Um, um, you know, someone's got a hold of my heart, um, which was more of just kind of a straightforward, you know, guitar kind of sound, not even very production-y the way that Infidel sounded, um, even though it was cut in those same sessions. Um, in any case, I think, uh, you know, Dad, you said, uh, you mentioned you like the, um, the original version of this song um, better. I actually like the, the Empire Burlesque version uh, a, a little more. Uh, I think that, um, you know, the, the lyrical changes uh, are slight, but they're interesting and they, they work. Um, and musically, actually, I think it's a lot of fun. And like, you know, this, this corny kind of new wave sound that seems to be grafted on to the, you know, Bob Dylan experience doesn't always work throughout this record. But in this case, I think this is, this is proof positive that it can work, um, in, uh, you know, in certain, in certain circumstances. I, uh, I found this, uh, to be, a a fun song when you just 
stop thinking about it too hard. Um, right. And I, uh, I was, which is kind of the key for this whole record. Yeah. It, it helps for sure to, to become like a Zen like, uh, person, have a Zen like view of the world where it's okay that Bob Dylan made a record that sounds like this. Um, <laughs> I, I was at a, at a luxury mall, uh, or at like, I was walking around FIDI, the financial district in, in Manhattan and like near a luxury mall and this like marina where all these yachts are docked. And, uh, this was the perfect venue for me to be walking around listening to this record. It's just like stupid excess everywhere, like a Gucci store. And, um, is that like, where that, like, uh, big thing that looks like a pine cone is? It's like a big glass thing. Um, it's okay. called Brookfield Place. Oh. Ian, you know um, what I'm talking about, right? It's some. Yeah, I think you're thinking of the oc- you're thinking of the oh the Oculus, Oculus area, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's right the around there. Yeah, that is very close. Right. It's yeah, very exactly. close. I mean, every building around there looks ridiculous, um, including yeah. the World Trade Center, uh, kind of. But um, it's a a great place to listen to the first track on <laughs> on this album uh, because. Uh, <laughs> You know, the title, Empire Burlesque, uh, that seems like, that screams Fidei to me. Uh, Apparently there's a club in New Jersey or something, or a theater in New Jersey called the Empire Burlesque, and that's, I guess that's where Bob picked up the title from, even though that's never been confirmed in 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 an interview or anything, that's just the single instance of the words empire burlesque ever having appeared <laughs> in conjunction with one in another. history. I mean, that seems uh, like what yeah. he would do. He would see that on a sign and go, Oh, I love that. And just that's, you know, it fits. Yeah. I mean, it fits this song anyway, for sure. Yeah. I think I see it as a, um, a yet another remnant from the Christian, you know, mindset that, you know, there's this whole aesthetic that he kind of adopted for two, three years. I think not coincidentally in the heart of the punk rock explosion where he was kind of, even though people, people didn't dislike Bob Dylan. um, He was part of you know, Elvis Beatles and the Rolling Stones, you know, the old guard. Yeah. That the, that the clash, you know, uh, called out on, on that song. And, and so I don't think he felt like he had a place in the modern world. And then, so I'll go, be, you know, regressive and go term- old Testament. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, yeah. um, and, uh, I, I do, I listen to you guys' podcast and I kind of had never thought of, but I actually agree with the concept that he might have been influenced by like a little Richard turning into a preacher and all this kind of stuff. You know, it just seems like mm-hmm. something Dylan would do. But um, but once that had run its course, th- then now what? And I think it's not coincidental that coming out of that Christian era, he was still kind of lost a little bit. And some of these records were not that good. I, I think. Empire Burlesque has some really good songs on it, but it's such a disjointed collection of songs. And I, I don't think that the Arthur Baker production touches have aged well. So no. at the time, <laughs> I enjoyed Tight Connection, and I thought it was kind of a catchy, cool song, and way better than, you know, 
got to serve somebody or something. And although I know you like that, Ian, and um, that's good stuff. But when I listen to it today, it really sounds not good to me. That's, well, it's corny yeah. as as all get out. Um, it's the corniest thing imaginable. Yeah. It, it, interestingly, it's it seemed like this record was actually like better received critically uh, at the moment or when it came out than it then it's then it's reputation kind of has has gone on like i was looking at the um the chris gow review uh you know before this and i think he called it his best album since blood on the tracks everybody which, says like, that yeah. <laughs> i'm so sick that's of hearing always, that it's got four it's always the touch it's point. got four and a half stars on all music but yeah oh well we've, time, we've learned a lot about we, all music at the time we're very anti yeah all music i kind of here. am too there are some good write-ups on there, but it just depends on sure. who the writer yeah. is. But Thomas Erlewine or whatever his name is. Stephen Thomas yeah, Erlewine. Dude, our nemesis. Uh, yeah, I think he wrote like all the reviews for the first 10 years of the, the site or something. It, it basically sounds like, like that. But, but as I, told, I texted Ian this morning, um, it does not appear at all in the top 40 on the Paz and Jop from the Village Voice, which at that time was kind of the – gold standard of critical, you know, lists. And, um, so I think it was a mixed bag. I think there were good reviews. I, I liked it at the time and, um, and thought it was definitely better than what he had done more recently. Although I did really like infidels. And, um, but again, I, Clearly, if it didn't make the top 40 albums, if you see some of the records that are on that list, that it, it wasn't well received by that group of critics. Right. Yeah, it should have it should have snuck in at the very bottom, at, at the very least, if anyone yeah. thought it was you know halfway decent. I suppose we should just uh, briefly touch on what the song consists of, what it's really about. And there's not much to talk about there, but there's uh, there's some, I guess it's pretty straightforward. It's just a. a a collection of very straightforward <laughs> lyrics that are almost um, comically so. Uh, has anybody seen my love? You've got a tight connection to my heart. And then some weird lyrics blue about uh, be- they were beating a devil, the devil out of the guy wearing a powder blue wig. Um, I don't know, just like weird imagery uh, that uh, kind of touches on i really don't know the great um, paul schrader oh, the the music video for this was directed oddly enough by paul schrader uh of hardcore of taxi driver fame and uh also first reformed um and uh hardcore and uh many others um famously transgressive filmmaker and uh in a way you, you one could make the case that this film is deeply transgressive <laughs> because it shows uh bob dylan looking like he's about to expire from nicotine poisoning uh, he, he looks, looks gray awful. yeah yeah he looks ashy have, have you have you ever seen the inside picture evan the inside oh of the record he's looking good let's see it this is the back cover oh yes you know i've seen that i've seen that image what, isn't there another one where he's like, like his a eyes are closed and, and they sort of like yeah, half yes, cut that's out the back the cover where he, of this other person that's looks, very odd in no world is that a good photograph. Yeah, it was clearly a snapshot that was taken at a bar or something, and they just put it on the back of the record cover. It's very odd. Yeah, it, it's like a, a photo that you would get tagged in uh, in our modern parlance and just be like, oh, please, yeah, t- take, 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 take my name me. out of that. But it, rather the, the, than that, he just decided, yeah, actually put that on the back of my 
big on new the back record. of the record. Yeah, it uh, it it extends the hot streak begun on uh, on real live, where he just uh, uh, he looks sort of slimy on the cover. Begun on uh, just, on Budokan, you know, really, he looks pretty bad on that too. He, yeah, he does look pretty bad on Budokan, although there is at least like some interesting lighting and stuff on that one. He's just, uh, you know, uh, like like uh, Clinton Halen says, uh, this is this is the nadir of his period and it's uh, of his of his recording uh, uh, history, and it's it's visible just literally based in how he how he himself looks and carries himself physically. Yeah, the very end of the music video, there's a part where he's doing a choreographed dance number. Is he in Japan during this? I, I don't know. It it appears it the, the, the video appears to have been recorded in Japan. Yeah, he's doing this dance number with flanked by two Japanese women and um it's like a very simple little uh, Macarena looking type of dance <laughs> routine. I don't think I've ever and seen there's this. just like, there's a moment you should look it up on yeah. YouTube. There's just one moment where, um, he, he has his thumbs up and his eyes blink and he sort of like, uh, closes his mouth in this way that I can't describe it, but it's, it's actually sad to, to watch. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, that, I'd that's probably a good, opening to you know sort of an issue with this record that i i think is yeah that I, I is important to talk about and that kind of carries forward into the next phase of dylan's career he clearly he was uncomfortable with everything about the sort of stylistic choices that were made to, you know about this record mm-hmm. but um what he did uh accomplish was uh, becoming engaged with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. They're all over this record. And then the tour to support this album was a joint tour with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And by that, and somehow Tom Petty was able to kind of influence Dylan in some way, because by the time, like, let's say six, eight months after this record came out and he looked so odd by the time he was on the road, uh, a few months later on the tour with Tom Petty, he was wearing black leather jackets and motorcycle boots and Levi's. And he looked badass again. He looked like the Dylan that toured Europe back in the late sixties. And um, so kind and, of, and he was playing like really good versions <laughs> of the old songs. And um, so somehow he was able to figure it out, but I think it took some, it took some time. Well, I think uh, it took maybe someone like Petty recontextualizing things for him, like just just observing that Tom Petty is like somebody who maybe somehow was Bob Dylan could see a path forward through Tom Petty and the way that he was able to handle being a rock star at that time uh, with a a bit of grace um, while still maintaining like the old time rock and roll uh, ethos in some way, Um, not being a a throwback artist, but not being a schlockmeister. Um, Tom Petty has somehow always seemed to find a pretty good balance uh, 
Yeah, I mean, Tom Petty was kind of a transitional guy, similar in a way to like Elvis Costello, you know, from England that were sort of Mm -hmm. kind of the bridge between the old rock and roll and the new wave. You know, they they had elements of each and they had fan bases on both sides of that chasm and and, and were both, you know, great classic songwriters. I mean, I I, will tell you, I like nothing better than you know, a great Beatles-esque pop song. And, um, you know, those guys were great at it. And, um, but understood sort of the historical importance of guys like Dylan. And I think, you know, like you say, I mean, Petty was able to kind of, you know, I think introduce him to a new way of kind of like, as you put it, contextualizing, you know, what he was doing. And then obviously that ended up leading to the traveling Wilburys, um, which came not long after this. Right. The cool, the coolest band ever <laughs> formed the traveling Wilburys. Yeah. I mean, on paper, it sounds like it would be, you know, I mean, had a really couple good songs. I mean, paper. it's cute. Uh, yeah. Well, we'll have to talk about that uh, at a later date, but I think we should move along ahead to, Track two, seeing the real you at last. Yep. Um, it's that, uh, that you feeling know, when you see the real you at last. We love it. We love to see the real you at last. Uh, not 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 my favorite on uh, on the record. Uh, I think right away we're we're zigzagging away from the um, uh, from what's going on in the first song with this sort of. Um, this is a very horn heavy track. Um, horny and, uh, could, could say. <laughs> yeah, horny in, in one sense. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of a, uh, throwback to what was going on in street legal, but, uh, but it does have that glossy sheen of, you know, the, the mid eighties. Um, I don't know. It's, uh, it, it's just not very, uh, compelling to me, pretty dumb lyric and, uh, you know, just kind of fat and like, um, like, like fat, like literally like there's fat on the bone of this song to me. Yeah. Uh, a, a good bit of it could be trimmed away. Um, and, uh, I don't know how much meat there would really be though. If, if you did that, uh, it's, yeah. uh, to extend that metaphor, seeing the real you at last, you know, it's a song about seeing the real you at last. Well, I've been sitting here listening because Ian, Ian will tell you that um, my favorite Dylan songs are often his bitter breakup songs, which is exactly, positively which fourth is, street and idiot. Wind. Like Rolling idiot Stone. Wind. Yeah. And, idiot Wind, um, yes. and um, this is one of those. So I kind of like it on that level. Um, it's a very, <laughs> very bitter acid tongued, put down yes. song of somebody that he's recently, you know, broken up with. And, um, as we'll see, as we go a little further along, you know, th- this, this record is definitely one that reflects, I think Bob's love life and changes and things that are going on in his personal life. And, and I think that's where it differs very substantially from what the other kind of legacy rock stars were doing at that time. And, you know, because born in the USA was a political record, uh, mm-hmm. building the perfect beast was Don Henley's version of a political record. And uh, this was not a political record. And this was Dylan no, this working, very personal lyrics. working through. Yeah. Like his, his love problems with the exception of one song. And, um, right. And so, um, you know, I think, 
it's ironic that the guy that was the ultimate political songwriter had kind of by this time sort of abandoned that almost completely. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's some lyrics I like about it. Like now that I'm sort of reading them, here's one. Um, I'm hungry and irritable. (laughs) Yes. And I'm tired of this bag of tricks. (laughs) At one time there was nothing wrong with me that you could not fix. And then, well, I sailed through the storm strapped to the mast Oh, but our time has come, and I'm seeing the real you at last. This almost does feel like it could be the lyrics to like a Roy Orbison song or something, yeah. like just like a classic, <laughs> like "Oh, I'm lonely" type of uh, jilted lover tune. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you. I, I thought you loved me, but you wanted me for my fame and money, or whatever. There's another, there's another <laughs> contributor to the podcast. A, a He's making his uh, podcast man. debut. What's the, yes. who is that? That would be, that would be Mac, the, uh, Mac, the dog Mac. named after Ian McCulloch. Uh, incidentally, who I am also named after. Mac Grant. Uh, yeah. Mac yeah, every, Grant. Everybody, uh, everybody singer. in my life is named after <laughs> Echo and the Bunny Man. <laughs> my God. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah, you're named after. Yeah, actually, Ian is true. Is named after. Wow. Yeah, one one of the great fatherly uh, experiences of my life was when I was when uh, I was there when Ian and Ian McCulloch met each other, and I was able oh to tell him, like, "Here's my son that's named after you and stuff." Super cool. That's remarkable. That was that was pretty cool. That'll that'll go down. The great uh, great Lou Reed disciple, uh, Ian McCulloch. Yeah, and and. Um, uh, Marky Smith and Leonard Cohen, like Ian McCall, you wouldn't imagine <clears throat> on the surface, they kind of seemed like very different guys, but Ian McCulloch and Marky Smith were very good friends. And there was a lot of, uh, you know, kind of, uh, back and forth between those two guys over the years. I feel like Echo and the Bunny Men is one of the most, uh, uh quietly beloved bands. Uh, I don't feel like anybody has anything bad to say about that group. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, they're one of my two favorite groups uh, from when I was a kid. And um, what I what I appreciate about them is that they never put out an Empire Burlesque. Um, mm. <laughs> <laughs> they, yeah. They've they've <laughs> held their dignity a little better. Yeah, them like the Cure. I feel is is also sort of like that. Like they yeah. they've had you know there are a few pop hits, but they yeah. they never decided. Well, now it's time to do one where we just try to do the pop hits. Yeah, um, for sure. Uh, a la, a la U2, <laughs> you know, at, right. At well, the, that's, that's everybody's beef with you. Their huh? first records came out. Um, you know, the bunny men and U2 were like competitors. Uh, but one, you know, went after the commercial brass ring and the other one was intentionally as obscure and weird as possible. And I liked one and uh, you know, U2 was okay for a major rock band, but it's impossible to have the kind of sort of personal connection to them that you would with a, a band that's more obscure. I think that that's true. You can never feel like it's something that you discovered or that is like more connected to your, your life when you know that the other band, you know, millions of people say right. that. Although every time I, they play. I will say this in their defense, the first, the actually, I guess it was the second time that I saw you two, um, was maybe 70 people there, um, in a tiny little 
club in Anaheim. Yeah, they had humble beginnings. And, w- when was this, though? It uh, was right after Boy came out, the, their debut oh, album. Okay, they played yeah. on like a Sunday night at a place out in Reseda called the Country Club. And I drove from Orange County out there <laughs> by myself to see them. And um, I, I didn't even know much about them. They'd been getting some you know, write-ups in the press. And I, I, they were fucking great. I thought that Bono was oh, yeah. was Roger Daltrey. I mean, they were yeah, I really mean, fucking great. Don't, don't get me wrong. I, I actually have a... A, a love for certain uh, U2 songs. And I mean, just their general power is yeah. undeniable. So, so then and, the next um, night they were playing in this hole in the wall in Anaheim that just specialized in like hair metal bands and shit like that. And I called a couple of my friends and I said, I saw this band last night. We got to go. And we went and it was, you know, it's really one of the most memorable shows I've ever seen. And um, to see a band that got to be as big as U2 at a place that hold like 75 people. And uh, Bono was walking around in the club beforehand and nobody knew what he looked like because their picture isn't on the cover of the American version right, of that it's record. Just the, the but boy. I had just seen him. So I knew. And so we just walked up and chatted. He was a cool guy at that time, but he was like our age, you know, very young. And um, so, you know, I, 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 I've had some positive experiences with YouTube, but um, they're they're YouTube. You know what can you say? Are you telling me that the yeah. boy, the child on the cover of Boy, is not Bono? That he's not a little boy? Well, <laughs> but that's not even <laughs> that's not even the American cover that was released at the time. The American cover of Boy was a like a black and white illustration, like silhouette silhouettes of the four. Oh yes, yeah, I see it now. It it looks kind of like the Fear album by um John Cale. Oh, John Cale. I feel like record. every album yeah. that came out in like 79, 80 was like black and white and very stark. Um I mean, when you look at uh Wikipedia for that record, uh the genre post-punk. Well, they were, I guess, boy. at the time. So, I mean, they were part of that scene, but they yeah, obviously became arena rock rather rather quick as soon as they could. Yeah went uh went in a little different direction we will uh we'll, we'll have you yeah, back I'm on sorry. When we, i'm sorry when we to take so many uh, the the, the lanois uh records i mean there's there's the the dylan u2 nexus right there yeah, Co- yeah. connection yeah uh next song on uh the great empire burlesque by bob dylan columbia Recording. <laughs> um <laughs> would be um i can't even read I'll my notes here you. um i'll remember yeah, i'll remember you you know uh bob dylan when asked in an interview in 1985 about what was his favorite song on empire burlesque uh he answered i like that song i'll remember you and um uh, i like them all really that one stands out for any particular reasons or well, it's it's it stands out um, because uh, I, I, I still feel exactly the same way as I did when I wrote it, and I figure I said what I had to say, and I said it um, uh, in, in a way that was very concise and, and uh, very brief, and then uh, it was over, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He just is like it's. Uh, I think I said it. I said it fine. Then it was over. That's uh, that's a, you know that's a pretty pretty accurate summation of what's what's going on. Well, here. it's you know three uh, you words. Know, I'll remember you. That's a, that's pretty impressive to cut such a strong emotion down into that few of words. 
Yeah, he's uh, there's someone that he's he's planning to remember here, coming right on the heels, uh, obviously of, of a more acidic, acid-tongued, uh, you know, um, fire-spitting kind of song, sort of in seeing the real you at last. This is uh, this is one of I think two or three actually of these like very maudlin, corny kind of ballads that appear on this album. There's mm-hmm. there's a couple of them uh, all the way throughout, and and I think these are actually some of the stronger tracks for, to to my ear. Uh, not that the lyric is any great shakes, you know. I, I don't think that he's really saying anything new or interesting here, um, or that there's any, uh, you know, any any of the the beautiful turns of phrase that we all uh, we've all come to know Bob for. Um, but some of these songs are just kind of easy to listen to, and like if you if you're not thinking too hard about them uh, and just accepting them as sort of a you know a dumb track, you know, they're they're totally fine. And, and this is the first of of a couple of those, I think for me, I agree with you, Ian. And I'm surprised though, that a a guy like you that is so uh, fond of Nashville skyline doesn't Mm -hmm. see the same kind of characteristics in in these songs. I I see those characteristics. Absolutely. But I think the difference for me is, you know, Nashville skyline is, is a hard left turn coming after, uh, you know, several years of, uh, just sustained run of the most brilliant, you know, possible songwriting imaginable. And so when he, when he makes that hard left turn into this very simple, plain, basic, you know, love song kind of style, it's such a, it's such a shock. And so, um, out of, out of left field, um, that you're like, whoa, you know, what, what is going on here now? Mm. And then when we're, when we're getting a song like this in 1985, <laughs> given, given the run that he's been on up until this point, you're like, all right, you know, I, I guess this is here. We're doing this again. It's harder this to suspend necessarily... your disbelief that this is yeah. the product of some kind of, uh, studied, um, uh, choice to be like, now I'm going to just give you uh, another uh, throw the dice and you're going to have to, you're going to be surprised. Well, and, and it feels, well, maybe this bit... is the right place for me to get into all of my, uh, you know, ideas about Dylan's love life. Uh, oh, be- okay. because, um, <laughs> Psych- psychoanalyze. Yeah, because, um, the year after this record came out, Dylan got married to his second wife, who is a woman named Carolyn Dennis who sings right. on right. many of the tracks on this album and on, drawing on, uh, by Bob Dylan is her that's on the oh. inner sleeve of the album. And I think these are yeah. love songs to her and she was there with him in the studio. I- I'm assuming that the reason they got married was because the baby was coming. And so right. I-, I think that this was kind of a domestic kind of period for him and um i think that's what these songs are about uh, so you're saying that this is nashville skyline part two well i don't know about <laughs> that but you know i think it has some of those elements and um you know uh, coming coming from an old guy um you know uh leopards don't change their spots you know like i think dylan is as dylan is and um you know i think he sings about what's happening to him in ways that are not very obvious, but you know, so in the hands of a lesser artist, it would be very transparent what he was talking about. But so you have to dig a little deeper with Dylan, but at the end of the day, he writes love songs when he's in love. That seems to be the case. Yeah, I guess 
That's that's a fair point. I, yeah. I feel really bad uh, for him. Uh, you know, later down the line when he's doing Time Out of Mind, I can't even imagine what he was going through because that's like the most suicidal record I've ever heard. Um, he's uh, he was sick of love by then, <laughs> and he almost died around that time too of a weird fungal infection. Did you know that? Did no, he? I didn't know. That. Yeah, interesting. Very strange, like an infection I, you only no get idea. from being in like tropical bogs or something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> of course, Dylan got that, uh, and that was what put him in the hospital. But I digress. Um, I don't know if I have anything more, much more to say about I'll Remember You. Um, it's the Bob Dylan choice select cut from this album, apparently. Yeah, I, I <laughs> like loves, it. He loves it. And, um, I wouldn't it's say I love the, it, but I like it. Oh, no, I mean Bob Dylan no, I know, loves it. I know. And you like it, Mr. Grant. Like it. So that's, that's right. li- dear listener. Mr. Mr. Grant. Mr. Grant Mr. Gr- likes it. Mr. Grant. Um, I, do you have anything more to say uh, on this, Ian? Or, or should we jump on along ahead to the next great song? Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know about the next great song, but uh, certainly the next song. One thing, one thing that the we can certainly say about Clean song. Cut Kid is that it is the fourth song on the album. Uh, the one that follows, uh, I'll Remember You. That's absolutely <laughs> um, true. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think, you know, dad, you were mentioning, uh, you know, most of the songs on this record are love songs with the exception of one, you know, which is a little more political. This clearly is that political song here. Right. Um, uh, this is this is Bob's attempt at uh, basically his attempt at a born in the USA. It's it's a Vietnam uh, right. it's a Vietnam song, um, and uh, and and lyrically, I think if you just look at the words on the page, it's actually pretty interesting. Um, and uh, and he's got some good good lines in here, some good takes. Certainly a more cogent uh, political analysis than something like um, Neighborhood Bully or Union Sundown, even um, from Infidels. But uh, the music itself, just this, you know, this is this is what I uh, this is one of several songs on this album that I've described in my notes as um, "Rockin' Daddy." Music. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds like the Stray Cats or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Bob is just trying to be a cool rockin' daddy here, and it's just oh you know, yeah. <laughs> so not, it's not like flying. it's like Born in the USA. If you got rid of all the lyrics, um, like the vibe that that song has, all the pathos, and um, and just focused on the end of that song with the cool rockin' daddy refrain, um, you know this this is a Born in the USA. Yeah, Born in the USA. Um, Born in the USA, a song which has such a powerful. Uh, melody and the contrast and the the dynamics of the the melody versus the lyric are like so intense when you really listen to to the lyrics and here like you said Ian I think there there are some powerful lyrics or these lyrics could be powerful but the music just not denies that uh because it is so uh cool it is so cool rock and it's so uh daddio well, there's a there's a reason for that. First of all, I want to say that this song was the point at which the student overtook the master. This is when Grasshopper took the bean out of the Mr. Miyagi's hand, or I guess I'm mixing my you, metaphors. You mean Bruce? Yeah, whoever. Well, no. So um, <laughs> Bruce had surpassed Dylan in the political songwriting uh, business by this point. But the reason why the song has that kind of out of place music is it was originally written for someone else. 
This song was written for a group called the Textones that was an L.A. new wave band led by uh, a female uh, singer-songwriter named Carla Olson. They came from Texas. And the other singer-songwriter in the Textones when they moved to L.A. was Kathy Valentine that Soon after the Textones got to L.A., Kathy Valentine got the bass job in the Go-Go's. And so she left the Textones and she became a Go-Go and went on to fame and fortune. Uh, Carla Olson then evolved into one of the, you know, the Textones into one of the earliest, what at that time was called cowpunk type bands. And oh, wow. Rank and File, Jason and the Squirters, Levi and the Rock Hats. You know, and obviously the Stray Cats were a commercialized version of that. They came along a few years later. But um, so Dylan. And then like later on, like the old 97s, do they sort of come they, out of I, that They were tradition? a little bit later, but yeah, that same kind of thing. And so Dylan wrote this song for the Textones for Carla Olson and gave it to them. And the Textones version of this came out like a year or 18 months earlier than the Dylan version and is better. And because it's not because it's substantially different, but because it's more in keeping with the aesthetic of that band. And he, clearly this was a genre exercise that Dylan wrote to, you know, for that band and that person. Um, and so um, and I w- and I was familiar with the song before Empire Burlesque came out and I knew Dylan had written it and I was a little confused and kind of disappointed with the fact that he even chose to record it because it was just didn't seem very apropos for him. That's crazy to me that you know that. <laughs> like, how do you know that? I lived it. He's, he's, uh, I, I, get, I, I yeah, saw he's the text tone spitting many times, you know, I okay, mean, that was wow. my life, you know. We have the perfect guest on for this because uh, how many people have seen the text tones and could have made that connection? Yeah, I don't know. Wow. But probably more than you might think that are my age that were into punk rock in Los Angeles in the late 70s and the 80s, you know? Yeah. The silent generation. Or whatever. Whatever we are. (laughs) The not not so silent generation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it it definitely sounds like what you've just described. It certainly sounds like it could have been written for a different group and... uh, yeah, I it sent has, Ian the original um, version like last week. He can he can share it with you. It's yeah, I'm curious to hear it. it. It sounds very similar, just with a female vocalist. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that this song would be like if this song were just you know were this this text tone song and just recorded by someone else in, on a different record with someone you know with a different reputation and stuff. Yeah, it's fine. It's like you know it's it's not a bad track, but like a Bob song, especially on this record with this sound, it's just like. This this strikes me as one that could have just been left on the cutting room floor. Yeah, it reminds me of neighborhood. The record would not be any any weaker. Yeah, it's it's the it's the uh, it's the cool kind of um, uh, left take on neighborhood bully, uh, but still equally shitty. Well, and again, and going back to the born in the USA comparison that Evan made, which is right on target. um, The difference in these tracks is that while born in the USA. It kind of has a Vietnam theme in the background. What the song is about is what the guy's life had become right. years later. Dylan right. doesn't seem to have gotten the memo that the Vietnam War was 15 years in the rearview mirror with his song. Um, it was written more like the issue had to do with the fact that they put the guy in the army um, to begin with. 
versus right. the Springsteen track was about the economic collapse of our country and the unfairness of the fact that this guy had sacrificed so much and then the country wasn't paying him back. Um, so right. the, the level of nuance and the level of sort of sympathy with the lives of common people that I think Bruce had was very different, I think, to what you know, Bob Dylan had in 1985. Yeah. I mean, I just, there's no greater uh, contrast there than to think of like some of the more poignant lyrics in uh, that song versus some of the m- lyrics that come to mind with this song. Like in Born in the USA, there's like the lyrics about uh, he had a woman he loved in Saigon. I got a picture of him in her arms now, which is like so heart wrenching. And then, um, the lyric I remember from this song is that he's eating at Burger King. It's <laughs> like he drank Coca Cola. He was eating Wonder Bread. Ate Burger Kings. Plural. Yeah, Burger, Burger Kings. Kings. He, he he's was eating well Burger fed. Kings. I mean, like, think of what they've uh, taken from us. You know, this this was a bright, boisterous youth who was eating Burger Kings, and then they <laughs> turned him into a murderer. <laughs> Uh, it's it, it, Bob, Bob calling it Burger King. It's like it's the way that parents used to call them, like a Pokemans. Pokemans, uh, yeah. but it's somehow even more out of touch because it's just about Burger King, not about some weird Japanese video game. Well, <laughs> it's, it's just it's, the most, it's just the most received, cliched uh, criticism of American consumerism. Just the roll call of well-known commercial enterprises and. It's not insightful, you know, coming from a guy who wrote some of the greatest lyrics ever, you know, 20 years earlier. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this, yeah, compare, hold this up to Masters of War or yeah. something. It just doesn't, uh, yeah. <laughs> doesn't look so it, hot. I, I consider it a misfire. Yeah. Burger Kings. Uh, <laughs> I think we can go on to the, the next song, maybe. <laughs> yeah, uh, to, uh, to wrap up side A here, Never Gonna Be the Same Again. Oh. Okay, so can I just, this to me is the emotional (laughs) centerpiece of the album. It is a duet with his soon-to-be wife, soon-to-be mother of his child. Yeah. So is she the one, she's she's the one singing the backing vocals here? And to me, this is the emotional center of what was driving this album, his love story with Carolyn Dennis. And, you know, fun oh. fact, I, we, which we mentioned on the episode about Slow Train Coming, was th- that whole song cycle, that whole collection, was actually originally written for her, for uh, I believe, for Carolyn Dennis, to have as her own record. Oh, interesting. And it ended up being just uh, something that Bob Dylan recorded on his own. But she's, but she's himself, on there, right? and she's been a part of his life and really part of his music um, yeah, she's on a lot of his records, a lot of his records. And she's got a tremendous number of credits uh, mm-hmm. with s- re- mostly R&B kind of records. But the Jacksons, Diana Ross, Stevie Wonder, Donna Summer, she, you know, the Carpenters. She's, she's been on some huge records. And here she is again on a huge record. Well, I don't know about that, but... <laughs> 1985's biggest hit. <laughs> but it's a moving love duet with her... S- her lover. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I really dig this one. This is another yeah, one I of like the, it. you know, kind of maudlin, yeah. maudlin kind of, uh, honey, uh, honey hearted ballads on here. And there's definitely some corny eighties kind of production with that yeah. big kind of like electric, electronic drum yeah, sound horrible. and synthesizer horrible. break. I, I <laughs> like it. I think it's great. Well, the, the, the um, production element that, uh, that makes me, um, do a double take is like, what is that? It, it's, I don't even know. It's um, the part that goes down. Yeah. It sounds like a Christmas commercial from the 80s, like a TV commercial for like a jeweler at the mall. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It's it's very like Holland Oats or or something, um, which is uh, I know is is a bad word to you, Dad. But uh, you know the the younger generation has come to uh, recontextualize and appreciate the cornballs of the era like that. Well, it's because all the music is cornball for the most part, or a lot of it is. Yeah, that's that's fair enough. Um, At but least yeah, Holland Oats good... sounds you know it sounds way more human compared to a lot of the music we hear today, which just just sounds like it was shat out by an AI. Well, yeah, I mean... Written by an algorithm. Again, yeah. Hollow Notes is not my style of music, you know, but Daryl Hall is like a super talented songwriter and musician, you know, and he's put out several solo records and, you know, the guy is very talented. It's just, you know, kind of square pop music that doesn't excite me. Uh, well, I, I, I have to um, point out that you just said that you really like this song, though. Yeah, no, no. It was, <laughs> it was the production that I was saying I thought was horrible. The song I, I think is good. I like it. Uh, I, I I have to agree there. Um, but uh, I be I'd be remiss not to say that the production, um, like you just said, is horrible. Um, it has a bad sound, <laughs> and it sounds bad. <laughs> um, and to the point, and and the lyric, I'll be a little bit of the the Grinch here. I find. Um, as powerful as it can be in its simplicity, it's also um, possible to hear this uh, while you're in a bad mood and think that it is. Um, it feels half-witted and um, like just literally uh, slow to some degree. Yeah, but um, people that are in love are yeah. half-witted and slow. That's that's so true. There. Uh, so that's actually, you've. You've shut me up. Crack the case. Yeah. I don't know about that, but uh, I ain't never gonna be the same again. You know that is the sound of that's that's the words of a man in love, uh, evidently. And uh, who am I to say? Yeah, I mean Bob's entitled. You know he's had a lot of a lot of hard hard breaks in his life, and uh, he was entitled to a little bit of love for a short time. Yeah, that's true. Certainly by this time. Well, well, I think that that brings us to the end of uh, side A of a uh, very interesting album, and it's only going to get more interesting on uh, on side B. Yes. Join us next time on Joker Men. Joker Men. Joker Men.